back at it for the Far Middle Podcast. This is episode 103, and this is your host, Nick Deolius. Episode 103 first airs on May 10th, if my sense of calendar is accurate, which is two days after World Donkey Day, celebrated on May 8th. Now, if you are not familiar with World Donkey Day, and shame on you if you're not, that's the day that we acknowledge the awesome characteristics of the donkey and the day when we can pay tribute to all of the work that the donkey has done for human beings over history. And I'm happy to report that human innovation and science and capitalism have for the most part put the donkey out of a job across most of the developed world. And both humans and donkeys have benefited from the progression ever since. I am concerned, however, that many policies from the left in the West are working hard to drag us back to where the donkey once again plays a prominent role in the economy. Now, that would not be my definition of progress. Okay, enough donkey talk. Let's now talk dedication for episode 103 in the world of sports. But we're going to stay in the animal kingdom. We're going to go from donkeys to goats. Goats is in the greatest of all time. And again, this episode first airs on May 10th. That happens to be the same date on the calendar when back in 1970, one of the most iconic photos in the history of sports came to be. Because on May 10th, 1970, the great defenseman, Bobby Orr of the Boston Bruins, he scored an overtime game-winning and Stanley Cup-winning goal to beat the St. Louis Blues and to clinch the championship for the Bruins. Now, when Orr was scoring that goal, a Blues defenseman got his stick stuck in Orr's skate. It sent Orr flying horizontally, arms extended, fully extended, right across the goal mouth the moment the puck went into the net. And that moment was captured by a photographer, and it became iconic, being anointed from then onward as the goal. And that brings me to the dedication for episode 103, not just the photo of the goal or Bobby Orr, but to the truly iconic photos in sports history. I gave some thought to what the best of the best in sports photos might consist of, sort of that Mount Rushmore, the four greatest ever. But before I get to the four, three of them to go alongside Orr and the goal, first let me talk about some of the honorable mentions. So there's the uh, shot of Will Chamberlain in the locker room after he notched 100 points in a game in Hershey, Pennsylvania. That's the photo where he's holding a piece of paper with 100 written on it. And also I thought of Diego Maradona the photo of the moment when he's about to handball the soccer ball into the goal in the quarterfinals against England in the 1986 World Cup. That, of course, came to be known as the hand of God goal, or what the English like to say is the greatest moment in volleyball history. And then in American football, there is the honorable mention for the moment that Dwight Clark called in Joe Montana's TD pass in the corner of the end zone against the Dallas Cowboys in the 1981 NFC Championship game at Candlestick Park. That one, of course, is known as the catch. And for baseball, honorable mention, I would go with Lou Gehrig giving his luckiest man on the face of the earth speech, standing at the mic on the field of Yankee Stadium. But then there are three additional photos above those honorable mentions to live alongside Orr's the goal on the Mount Rushmore of sports photos. The first I'm going to add alongside Orr is Willie Mays and the catch. That's the catch baseball version. Uh, during the 1954 World Series. You've got that shot of Willie's back and outstretched glove that are shown the moment he makes the -the over-the-back basket catch in dead center of the polo grounds. Um, By the way, not only did Mays make that catch, but his quick response time after the catch to relay the ball back into the infield prevented two runners on base from advancing as well. And that would have been a home run in most, if not all, ballparks today. But the polo grounds had a vast center field Experts estimate that the fly ball was hit somewhere in the 420-foot range. 
Now, second to add alongside or, and then with uh, Maze and the catch on that Mount Rushmore of sports photos is a bloodied and a battered Y.A. Tittle, the Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, most notably for the Giants, who's kneeling helmetless in exhausted agony on the grass of Pitt Stadium in Pittsburgh during a game. That photo was taken in 1964 after Tittle threw a pick against the Steelers. He took such a beating on that play and in the game in general that he spent the night in the hospital. But you know what? He played another game five days later. That photo epitomizes to me the agony of defeat along with the nobility of perseverance. Now, the third one to add alongside Orr and the last one to round out our four on Mount Rushmore um, for photos is what I think might be the all-time greatest of sports photos. And that is Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston after he knocked him out in the ring in Miami in 1964. Uh, the photographer ended up becoming one of the most famous in sports, Neil Leifer. And this was uh, the bout of the famous Phantom Punch, where some to this day swear that Liston was never hit when he fell. In other words, some are claiming that Liston took a dive. But there you have it, the Mount Rushmore of sports photos that we dedicate episode 103 to. Bobby Orr and the goal from 1970, Willie Mays and the catch from 1954, Y.A. Tittle bruised and bloodied in Pittsburgh from 1964, and Ali sneering over Liston in the ring in Miami, also from 1964. And here's something intriguing and ironic about three of the four photos that I just mentioned. They were not published or widely distributed initially. The Orr photo, Ali, and Tittle photos, they were almost passed over or ignored. But eventually, of course, their eye appeal took over and corrected the error of the editors and whatever those editors were thinking at the time. You know, you can't suppress greatness, even if sometimes it feels that the powers that be are trying their best to do so. And that matter of irony applies to issues beyond the world of sports photos, which is where we will pick up another of our links of connections for this episode. In honor, as always, to Dr. James Burke of Connections BBC uh, television series fame. Let's talk irony in the context of geopolitics and what happened in World War II and what that means we're dealing with today on the geopolitical map of 2023. There is indeed an element of enormous irony to be found across those items. Now, most World War II history buffs, they know that Nazi Germany and Hitler, they were staunchly anti-communist. The communists and the fascists viewed each other as mortal enemies. And we discussed this topic a few weeks ago in a prior episode Mostly they viewed each other as sort of staunch enemies because their polar opposite extreme views, they eventually circled around to meet one another, and there could only be one in the end. So someone had to go. But what most people, and even those who are World War II buffs, don't realize is that the Nazis were not the most anti-communist nation during World War II. That label goes to Japan. And here is where the irony comes in. When Japan unleashed its brutal campaign in China during the 1930s and 1940s, there were no winners except for one. Now, the Japanese lost because it depleted its resources and troops against what was going on in the Pacific against the United States. So it basically bled resources away from the Pacific theater against the United States. And by the way, Japan lost a lot of soldiers in China. And the nationalist Chinese lost because the fight with Japan took a massive toll in manpower and attrition. That left the Chinese communists to fill in the void left by the destruction of total war. And the most anti-communist of nations across the Axis and allies in World War II, Japan, ended up helping the Chinese communists the most. The nationalists of China and the Japanese, they killed each other off. 
to the benefit of the civil war adversary of the Chinese nationalists, which of course were the Chinese communists. And that irony from over 80 years ago during World War II has implications for the globe today because it's logical to conclude that if Japan didn't embark on its aggression in China then, we would not have a communist China today prowling the planet. And students of history realize that the mistakes and ironies of World War I that led or they led to World War II. So let's hope that the mistakes and the ironies of World War II don't lead to a World War III. Yes, Japan's decisions when it came to its brutality in China back then, it's uh, proven to have an outsized impact on geopolitics today. Let's connect to the topic of outsized impacts in the capital markets space of today. What sort of outsized impacts are we seeing there? going to instill to you, I think, an amazing fact when it comes to the S&P 500. The market cap weights of Apple and Microsoft, which are in the S&P 500, they're double, twice, the weights of the entire energy and materials industries or sectors in the S&P 500 combined. And that's amazing, even in the era of FANG stocks and recent tech dominance. And if you think inflation is going to keep raging along, which I certainly do, because much of the inflation isn't going away since the government policies that caused it aren't going away anytime soon, then that makes the two times weighting of Apple and Microsoft versus the entire energy and materials sectors of the S&P 500 even more amazing. And don't forget that everyone knows the tech space is in recession with a slew of layoffs coming one after another, along with higher interest rates hurting the ability of the tech space to keep growing through a dirt cheap cost of capital. To me, um, this is a blaring, flashing warning light that something is very wrong with the capital markets and key indices like the S&P. Mr. Market is supposed to be smart enough to adjust to these disconnects and adjust. Mr. Market used to be, you know, for lack of a better term, efficient. But today, Mr. Market traded in its efficiency and rational behavior for subscribing to and adhering to ideology that is basically a religion. So whether it's ESG or zero carbon or old economy, new economy, energy transition, you know, on and on it goes, you know the catchphrases as well as I do, those things or those beliefs, those ideologies are creating an irrational series of outcomes in things like the S&P 500. Microsoft and Apple are certainly great massive companies that deserve oversized valuations. But logic tells you they can't have market caps greater than the energy and material industries combined when it comes to the S&P 500 which is exactly where they are at. And the last thought here is don't forget why we know that this is illogical. You can't make the PCs and the phones and the electric vehicles and so on of the Apples and the Microsofts and the Teslas without the energy and material sectors. So if you're bullish on the former group, you have to assume demand is exploding for the latter group. Now, speaking of the energy transition, let's talk about what's going on with all the materials that are necessary to make smartphones and solar and wind and electric vehicles. Those wonderful elite international institutions, one of which is the OECD in particular that I'm going to talk about uh, for this dot, they are starting to figure out there are a plethora of massively large challenges facing the unimaginable scale up that's envisioned for wind and solar and electric vehicles across the planet. So first let's back up and talk process of this non-virtuous ecosystem and how it works. Now these institutions and the OCDD in this case is no different. They've got that maddening characteristic of demanding a policy that's flawed from the get-go. 
Then they successfully lobby for it by being cited by the media and academia and government allies as an expert authority on the matter, which they are clearly not. And after that, once governments and its affiliates start to gear up to travel down the flawed road of the policy, the problems start to manifest and to creep up. You know, the math and the physics and the economics and the chemistry-driven details that aren't going to budge to ideological desires. And finally, once the problems are becoming evident to everyone, the elite institution that was one of the originators of the mess will put out an official paper or study sounding concern or alarm to the foreseeable consequences that their original advocacy should have known would happen. And then the cycle repeats over and over. Okay, so if that is the cycle at work, let's apply it to the current situation of the OECD warning that, and I'm going to use the techno speak that they use here, export restrictions, that's what you and I would call taxes, on mineral production in foreign nations is hurting the ballyhooed energy transition. So the OECD is waking up to the reality that the stuff that's needed for wind turbines and solar panels and batteries, that it's concentrated in foreign lands away from the U.S. and the EU, and that China controls the supply chains of extraction and processing, and that now many of the governments of those faraway lands, they're taxing the living bejesus out of the extraction and the transport and the processing of the needed stuff. Not sure why anyone is caught off guard by that, but the OECD seems to have found it shocking that a developing nation or foreign government would tax the mining or the processing of stuff headed to export to rich Western nations under forced mandates to use the stuff under cover of tackling climate change. Who would have seen that coming, right? The media quoted line from the OECD study will make you chuckle, I think. Here it is. Overall, the research so far suggests that export restrictions may be playing a non-trivial role in international markets for critical raw materials, affecting availability and prices of these materials. Well, you gotta love the masters of the obvious in these insulated cocoons of elite bureaucracies. Look, there are basic truths about wind and solar and electric vehicles at scale, constant listeners. The far middle laid down the truth long ago, and now the experts are figuring out that they're getting exposed and they're trying to adjust and shift. But one can't get out of the impregnable ring of truths when it comes to the energy transition. Um, first one is that solar and wind and EVs, they've got massive life cycle carbon footprints. They raise CO2 levels. They're not even close to zero carbon. Second, there's not enough stuff on planet Earth to make all the solar, wind, and EVs needed under current government mandates with climate policies. That stuff in that magnitude doesn't exist in the quantities that we need. Third, you know, China controls the supply chains of these things, these materials globally. They watched how we were committing energy and economic security suicide by following the zealots and the environmental movement and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. It positioned itself to control our future. Fourth, the cost of these forms of energy and transport, they are proving to be more and more expensive to the point where they will be prohibitively expensive and wreck our economies. Taxes by foreign governments on the mining of feedstock materials is only the start. The inflation that we've experienced so far is only the start. Then fifth, the production of these mandated forms of energy, they come with major human rights abuses from the child to the political or religious prisoner. The energy transition is causing human suffering, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II. And then the last, the sixth truth of this uh, energy transition is this new energy portfolio. It's going to be grossly inadequate when it comes to reliability. 
Grid instability, it's the new normal for the United States and for EU power grids. Now, those are the truths of the energy transition. And until elite institutions and entities like the OECD, until they wake up and start speaking common sense and logic, the pain is going to continue and the pain is going to grow. I published a piece back in 2020 that you can read on nickdeolius.com under the commentary section. Uh, the title of it was Eight Irrefutable Energy Truths. And that one was a little bit broader based across all of the energy space, all energy sectors. I think maybe it's time to update that piece with uh, these six truths about wind, solar, and batteries at scale. So stay tuned on that. Okay, I just mentioned truth and logic. Now on to making our next connection to that duo of truth and logic and how it applies to a subject that I receive a lot of questions about from constant listeners. The subject is artificial intelligence, and most often the questions I receive on the subject of AI, they are going in the direction of the risks of AI and how regulation of it may unfold. So let's spend a few minutes in this episode 103 to hit a few key issues in the arena of AI. First, recognize there are two broad categories of applications and industries where AI stands to play a prominent role. The first category, they're the more traditional industries that include manufacturing and construction and energy, pharmaceuticals, the law. Um, the second category, those are professions or industries that are more subjective and creative in nature uh, than the ones I just mentioned. So examples of the second category, that's going to include art and literature, music, the media. Um, the concerns I have when assessing AI, they're quite different for each of those two categories of industries or professions that I just mentioned. So let me explain. When it comes to that first category of industries that drive our lives, building stuff, inventing stuff, powering stuff, my biggest concern is that AI will be harnessed and hamstrung by the bureaucrat and by regulation. I fear that AI would not be allowed to move the ball forward and advance the state of the art as quickly as it normally would on its own. And missing out on those advancements or delaying them, it could be very costly to the human condition. Think about what the cost would be if the next major cure for a major disease would be in lives if AI would bring to bear the discovery, but the bureaucrat held it back or delayed it because it desired to control it. And we know government as an organism, it endlessly seeks to control everything around it when not checked. And AI will not be any different than what we saw with government intervening through banking oversight and healthcare and climate change policy, stifling energy and the industry of energy. Um, building codes, right? What government's doing currently with crypto, when the bureaucrat gets involved and government gets control, progress is sure to be one of the first casualties. But then there is that second bucket of industries and professions, the art space, uh, the writers, social media, music, the media itself. Um, through platforms such as social media and the internet, my concern here is going to be very different than what I just mentioned for those more tangible industries in the first category. Here, I see AI posing a massive threat to the individual and to Western Republican democracy. If you thought fake news was a problem before AI, wait till after AI gets a hold of it. If you thought the science and its ideology was killing actual science, you thought that was bad prior, wait till AI manufactures scientific consensus out of nothing. Many people have only the most basic understanding of big, important issues these days, and they rely on Wikipedia and social media and cable and influencers for the truth. That's scary enough. But what if AI overwhelms all of that and no one can tell any fact from fiction? 
And whoever wins the arms race of content fabrication is going to win the day, and they're going to win the future, and they're going to win the planet. It's sort of uh, George Orwell's 1984 squared. And by the way, I worry about the creative arts with AI big time, and not necessarily for the art or the product itself. Those things might get better actually with AI. But I do worry about the artists, so to speak. If you're an artist of any kind, you can be a writer, a painter, a musician, a designer, or a filmmaker, it really doesn't matter. Your job is potentially going to be made obsolete in pretty short order by AI. So, you know, think about this. Why pay huge premiums for these services or these works where AI can do it faster and do it quicker and do it better and do it cheaper? I think society needs to think through what we desire in these arenas before we unleash AI on these unsuspecting masses or endeavors or professions. Another major issue I see with AI, it rears up when you hear experts in the field of AI at some point inevitably stating that artificial intelligence needs to be managed in a way that is consistent with Western values or democratic values. Now that sounds good. In fact, at first blush, it sounds great. But then think about it. Who gets to decide those things? What are Western values exactly? What is consistent with democracy exactly? Depends on who you're asking. And those answers can be very, very different these days. I would not want, for example, a leftist deciding the answers to those questions. And what if coastal California values determine those versus flyover country values? Today, we in America, we can't agree on basic issues like freedom of speech and individual rights. How are we going to agree on what democracy means and what Western values represent? And when we deadlock on the debate, who ultimately decides? That keeps me up at night. And the third big issue I see about AI is that like any other disruptive innovation that comes along, adoption of AI will inevitably lead to the destruction of jobs or careers that are made obsolete by the new technology. That's evolution, and that is the price of progress. Cars killed the horse buggy, internet killed the encyclopedia salesman career, and AI is going to kill jobs, and perhaps a lot of them. So what do we do about that? because I always believe that jobs provide meaning for human beings. We like to strive, and we like to achieve, and we need to have purpose. So streaming movies or series all day on the couch every day, that's not going to provide those things. So if lots of people are about to lose their jobs as AI makes them obsolete and society benefits from the advancements, what do we do about the collateral damage? That needs, I think, some serious contemplation. What I know the answer is not, is government intervening to make it better. It'll only make things worse. Yes, AI will eliminate certain jobs, but it comes with massive societal benefits. Government regulation kills jobs and not only fails to benefit society, but actually makes society worse off. So we don't need government making it worse when it comes to some of the inevitable collateral damage of AI, that's for sure. So when I think of AI, I spend most of my time on those three issues. You know, one bucket of industries where AI benefits humans if government gets out of the way, and a second bucket of industries and professions where AI poses a real existential threat to those industries. Um, when experts say AI needs to let loose in a way where Western values and democratic values are embraced, who gets to decide what that means in a divided society like today's? And last, if a whole bunch of people are about to lose their jobs and thus their dignity through disruptive AI, how do we ease that pain and transition to the next thing for the individual without having government jump in and make it worse? Now, maybe, just maybe, you're hesitating to take my word for some of these views on artificial intelligence 
particularly the one regarding how AI is about to make the creative arts and its professions obsolete. I mean, what do I know? So let me offer up as the next connection, a voice from the past who saw it way back then, the same way that I see it now. And not just any voice, but one of the greatest voices in rock music history. I'm talking about Freddie Mercury from Queen. I'm not sure when he spoke these words, I'm guessing sometime in the 1980s, but here is how Mercury saw technology impacting music. I'm gonna quote from him. We are in the golden age of music. There will be a time when technology becomes so advanced that we'll rely on them to make music rather than raw talent. Music will lose its soul. That's what Freddie Mercury said 40 plus years ago. I read that and the first thing I think is right on Freddie. He called it what, 40, as I said, plus years ago. But the second thing that pops into my mind when reading that quote is who is Freddie Mercury referring to when he says them? That's a great and an important question to ponder, not only from the perspective of what he was thinking, but more importantly, from the perspective of what we in society are thinking them should reference today. Who are them? That's going to make all the difference in the world into the future of our society. And by the way, I mentioned way back on a prior Far Middle episode how Queen's Live Aid performance might have been the greatest single live rock performance in history. And you constant listeners agreed it was certainly up there. And some of you offered up a few worthy alternatives to consider. I guess that's a future feedstock for an upcoming episode or some commentary on nickdeolius.com. But Freddie Mercury, his family was from and he was born in Zanzibar. Now, where is Zanzibar? It's a group of islands off the coast of eastern Africa in the Indian Ocean. And I believe it's part of Tanzania today, and it was part of the British Empire back when Mercury was born. Now, the name Zanzibar, what the heck, let's just allow it to lead us into another connection, why don't we, to, to wrap up this episode. That's the name of an underrated but a great Billy Joel single from the album 52nd Street. Now, the single Zanzibar really shows off the jazz direction that Billy Joel wanted to take after releasing the pop smash album, The Stranger, a year earlier. So those are two great albums, The Stranger and 52nd Street, that Joel released back-to-back in the 1970s. Anyway, the song Zanzibar, it has lyrics that talk about a fictional sports bar called Zanzibar, where a guy, I assume Billy Joel, is attempting to impress and develop a romantic relationship with a waitress working at the bar. So the song's unconventional because it includes a lot of jazz elements, which I love, and it includes a trumpet solo by the great Freddie Hubbard. And Freddie Hubbard is in the jazz world as famous as Freddie Mercury is in the rock world and Billy Joel is in the songwriter world. And I once caught an interview with Billy Joel where someone asked him how he came up with the song concept and the lyrics for Zanzibar. And Joel explained he originally had the idea to write a jazzy song with the title Zanzibar, but he was just having a heck of a time, a lot of trouble coming up with a good story for the lyrics. And his longtime producer, Phil Ramone, then suggested that Zanzibar, it sort of sounds like the name of a bar, which Joel thought was perfect. The lyrics flowed after that. And I always wondered what record producers do, but now I know they help come up with the storylines of great songs. And although The Stranger was Billy Joel's breakout album, 52nd Street, it was the first Billy Joel album to go to number one on the charts and it earned him a few Grammys along the way. My Life and Big Shot are the two songs everybody knows. I like them both a lot, of course, but my favorite duo from that album are Zanzibar and Stiletto. Give the entire album a spin this week if you get a chance. I will leave you with a few lines of lyrics from Stiletto on 52nd Street. But you stand there pleading with your insides bleeding because you deep down want some more. 
I hope you constant listeners want some more of the far middle. And if you do, you shall have it next week.